Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Go on. Uh, never mind, go on. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And Michael was just going to say something and I said, let's launch into the show. Yeah. Well, Wait, what were you going to say? I was going to say, did you know that Grant Morrison and Frank Whitley designed tarot cards for Robbie Williams' albums? I did not know that, no. Uh, I'm very impressed. It didn't go down well with Robbie Williams fans. But it went down well with Robbie Williams. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, well, he presumably employed them for the gig. Mm-hmm. If he's happy, big fan apparently. Is he? To Mr. Morrison, Robert Williams is a big fan of Grant Morrison. According to Mr. Morrison, <laughs> and everything he says, yeah, of course, yeah. is of utter truth. If the guy hired him, I'm assuming there's a reason. Yeah, for there that. must be a reason for it. Anyway, hello everybody. Hello everyone. A um, couple of things before we kick off tonight. Sure, one, I've done myself a mischief at the gym. And can't straighten my left arm. So obviously those weights have done something that they shouldn't have. Are you allowed to wank in gyms? Uh, Well, I wouldn't (laughs) use my left hand for that anyway. And it's my left arm. Thankfully it's my left arm that's done this to me. But I I, I literally can't... Ow! I cannot straighten my arm! Oh, blimey O'Reilly. Or crikey O'Reilly, as Agent Carter said. Crikey O'Reilly rather than blimey O'Reilly which I would have thought was the more accurate Are they twins? uh, Yes, they are are related by birth Uh, Oh, that hurts Uh, Secondly, there is no Michael pick tonight There's not But he actually has a very good reason for not having a pick So let us tell us what your reason is I was busy making a portfolio for an interview at university that I had today yeah, and so he went all the way down on the train yep. to do his interview and got back, and he only got back just about an hour and a half ago. So he's only had time to read the two comics that I picked tonight. So those of you that are all, oh, Michael's a little bit off the wall and wacky, I prefer his picks <laughs> to the, the most straightforward superhero stuff. I'm so stuff. off the wall, I didn't pick one this week. That's, that's, that's how, how off the wall you are. <laughs> that's how left field you are. I like That's actually... Yeah. Very good. I'm off the hook. I like that. No I, think that's, I think that's. There's no stop me now. I'm having such a good time. That one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we get into the email section of tonight's show, uh, I got home today and there was a huge parcel across the road with a neighbour because we weren't in and it wouldn't fit through the letterbox. And it was from the ever magnificent Mikey Might Be. And there's a two page letter that goes with it that I'm not going to read because it's for me. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I got to the last paragraph and he managed to, to chip away at my cynical British heart. For which I say, Michael, you're a bastard. You, you did shed a lone manly tear. I did, tear. a little manly tear. Kind of may have. It didn't, it didn't shed. Yeah, yeah. Because I am far too manly for of, such of things. Course. Oh my god, my but, uh, I was, I was, I was genuinely touched by his last paragraph. And as such, I'm not going to read it out because I'd probably go all girly man on you. Do you again. think he wrote it? On his laptop, on the drive to work. <laughs> <laughs> da 
would be awesome if he did. Laptop on the back of the seat. <laughs> that would be brilliant. But inside this mammoth package, for me, anyway, because he sent something for me and something for Angela yeah. and something for Michael. Um, fortunately, Adam and Annie weren't around, so they don't know they didn't get anything. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me the science fiction yearbook, volume one, which was from Starlog, which looks like it's going to be really, really cool. Literature, films, fandom, the lot. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. Because um, I've not seen this on archive.org, where they currently have all the Starlog stuff. So I'm very interested in that. Especially since it's got Superman and Battlestar Galactica on the cover. And Wonder Woman, and The Incredible Hulk, and Isaac Asimov, and Einstein, and some art by Frazetta. Oh, and Boris Valjeo, excellent. And Robert McCall! Not just the equaliser, he is actually an artist of, of no. science fiction stuff, yeah, so that's... Um, the articles written by Harlan Ellison. Ha- articles by Harlan Ellison, Fred Pohl, David Gerald. this looks really, really good. This is when Starlog was a proper science fiction magazine. Yeah. As opposed to the puff piece stuff that it became in later years. Uh, an issue of Newsweek from January 1st, 1979, uh, which has an article about Playboy in it, which is, is awesome. Oh, right, and Superman's in it as well. So I presume that's why he sent it to me. Could be. Not for the article of uh, Play- ah, DeLorean! Talking about the DeLorean! <laughs> oh, brilliant. It looks very much like a Lotus, yeah. doesn't it, in that particular photo? Wow, look at 70s man there advertising <laughs> cigars. Digging that moustache. When you can't quite afford to be the Marble Man. <laughs> <laughs> so, Newsweek, thank you very much. And then a slew of trade paperbacks and comic book graphic novels, as they have probably called internet. Oh, Secret Origins number two, starring The Flash, which looks quite interesting. I don't think I've read that, so I'm looking forward to that. But the graphic novels slash comic book collection include Batman Holy Terror... By Alan Holy Brennett. Terror Batman. No, Holy Terror Batman, which was what? Isn't that what Brand Frank Miller wanted today? Yeah. And Norm Bray Fogel, which is cool, because Alan Brennett's stuff is really good, so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, Superman Godfall by Michael Turner and Joe Kelly and some other people. Uh, which, this this sold very well. This had quite the, the fan following. Yeah. Because he, he said in his letter, you may like this as well. So, looking forward to that. Green Lantern, A New Dawn. Now, I don't know, is this a graphic novel? Or is this a collection of issues? Oh, no, it must be all of Kyle Rayner's first ones, because that first one we covered. Yeah. When we did that. Oh, right, that's cool, then. So this carries the story on. Oh, very good, very good, very good, very good. Looking forward to that. Bit of Kyle Rayner. Batman Contagion and Batman Legacy in the original trade paperbacks, which are apparently worth a, a pretty penny on eBay. Which, so, very, very much looking forward to reading them. Uh, the Prisoner the sequel to the TV show, which I think I read one issue of a long time ago, but I'll give it a go. Scott Rifen didn't like that. Oh, yeah. But we'll give it a go. We'll see how we go. Thanks very much, Michael. And the death of Gene DeWolf in trade paperback. Now, I have the death of Gene DeWolf in hardcover as well as having the original issues. So, with Mike's permission, I am willing to pay this forward, which is always the best way to go with these things, isn't mm-hmm. it? So, if you want a copy of the death of Gene DeWolf, in trade paperback, let me know and I will send it to you. And I will pay it forward to somebody who perhaps doesn't have this. Because I always think it's best to share comic books with people. Or, if nobody texts me up on it, I'll give it to the children's library around the corner. Because I'm pretty sure Mike wouldn't be bothered about that, me donating it to a children's library. Yeah, but I appreciate it anyway. If I didn't have it in hardcover, I'd keep it. Sending the death of to a children's library. Yes, let's send the death <laughs> of somebody to a children's library, absolutely. But he didn't just send me something. Did he, Michael? No, no, I received uh, Secret Origins, issue 50, the final issue. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is, uh, it's got a really cool cover. Who's that? Who is that cover by? I don't know. Tata from Ty. Ty Templeton, presumably? Could be. I presume so. I really like it. They're all taking down the signs and that. Because it's the last issue. And Abigail Arcane chic in that touch. <laughs> She's, uh, yes. And Robin's not ogling her. Although he does look like he's distracted by Zetana. Yeah, well, it's Black Canary. Oh, I just saw the fishnets and I didn't say anything else. Of course. That explains a great many things, doesn't it? Yes. Mm. Uh, I am assuming I uh, did receive this because of the Grant Morrison story. Yeah. With art by Mike Parabek. Oh, I love Mike Parabek. Well, I'll probably read that as well, then. Yeah. Because I love a little bit of Mike Parabek. It says six all-new stories. Did Grant only write one of them? He did. The Flash of Two Worlds. Oh, right. Oh, it's just some George Perez art in it. Grant Morrison doing some early multiverse stuff. Well, you can't go wrong with a bit of George Perez. Oh, this looks really cool. Yeah, Flash of Two Worlds. Grant Morrison and Mike Paraback. It's a shame that you hadn't read this before we did tonight's show, because maybe you could have covered it here. Yeah. But, uh, Salavi, it was not to be. You know, it's just one of those things. What else? Oh, yeah, and what's really cool, um, the Vertigo Trading Card Series, from one I'm guessing, uh, the, the majority of them, I think it's a complete run, isn't it? Well, I was thinking that. A couple of, couple of gold ones missing, so thanks, Michael. I'm, I'm going to have to... <laughs> the completionist in me is yeah. going to have to track those down now. But yeah, these are really cool. They're all um, Vertigo characters. So you get Swamp Thing, John Constantine, Well, co- they're, they're, The Hellblazer ones are covers from magazines, aren't they? Oh, they're they're covers, actual yeah. covers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, brilliant. It's the same with Salmon. I'm assuming it's the same for all of them. Right, they're all covers. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, because I mean, that's the post... Morrison era of Animal Man. Yeah, isn't you it? get to Animal Man, and it's the Vertigo era, so yeah. Delano pretension. Uh, well, it's Brian Bolland covers though. Yeah, so yeah. You can't really go bro- wrong with Brian Bolland. Uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, Black Arcade, Doom Patrol, Books of Magic, and then little character. I like these character cards. I like the John Constantine. Who drew that one? That's Sean Phillips. Right. You'll have to get him to sign that one for you. Yeah. Because that would actually be pretty cool. He doesn't do uh, zombies anymore. But no, he'll probably sign that card for you, though. Yeah. I would imagine. Uh, all the members of the Endless get one. Excellent. That's, that's pretty cool. Which fits in with last week's show. It does, yeah. Which is quite good. But yeah, these are pretty cool. See, now you're just distracted by looking at them. I am, yeah. I like that he's actually sent them in little in little packets. For, oh, Jonah Hex, that's a good one. Yeah. I like that Jonah Hex one. I like that he's actually sent you in the little wallets mm. as well, so you don't even have to go to any effort to put Sebastian out. You don't even have to go to any effort to uh, find somewhere to store them. He's done it all for you. I know, yeah. Oh, there's a couple of gold ones, though. Oh, there we go. They've all got numbers. Right, so you can actually say, I think it's almost a complete set. Yeah. Which is great. Thank you, Michael Bale. There will, there will be a Facebook post. As soon as you find your phone. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of gold ones, though. Yeah. I think that's, that's really awesome. So, thank you very much, Michael. But thank you doesn't really seem to cover it, to be honest with you. I was, uh, I was genuinely quite gobsmacked by the size of Michael's packets. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to be serious Freezing. for long, did you? No, seriously, thank you very much, Michael. I greatly appreciate that. I'm looking forward to digging into a lot of that. You know, when I find time to read stuff that isn't yes. for a show. Uh, speaking of Michael Bailey, who do you think our first email is off tonight? Luke Jackanetta. Uh, uh, sadly not. <laughs> sadly, it's not off Luke tonight. It's actually off Michael Bailey. Ah. It's like we plan this stuff. It is. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago when we were planning this show, we were working out which emails to go in which show. I knew that that package would arrive today, even though Michael hadn't sent it yet. And that Michael would uh, and send that us he email. would have the email ready. 
Okay. You read it? Yeah. Shall we jump into Michael's email? We should jump in. I think we should. Everybody loves Dick Hurts. He was a lovely bloke that owned the mini-mart down the street from me. Actually, that's not true, but if we're going to be making dick jokes, we might as well take it to a lower level. I don't think you could take it to a lower level than everybody loves dick. Everyone loves knees? Toes? <laughs> that doesn't quite work, though, because his name's not Toes Grace. <laughs> that is so funny. Toes Grace. Yeah, it's like a, a 40s gangster name, isn't it? <laughs> It totally is, yeah. yeah. And his partner, Knees. Toes Malone. Knees Drake. <laughs> and Toes Grayson. That's actually quite funny. <laughs> anyway, hey there, Leyland. Mikey might be here with another email. Sadly, I cannot type that I'm writing this on a Sunday morning whilst at work. It's actually Saturday morning, before seven, as I start this. Sigh. Your coverage of Dick Grayson as Robin has been great, but that's not a surprise. I think it's a bit of a surprise. Take a good show and give the host something they are bound to like in the first place, and that makes a recipe for fun listening. I have a somewhat bipolar view of Dick Grayson as a character. There will always be a part of me that looks to him as the other half of Batman and, but by the time I actually started collecting comics, he was Nightwing, so I see him equally as both. Over my time in harness as a reader, I have developed quite an affinity for Mr. Grayson, especially when written by Chuck Dixon, so it was nice to hear you cover his first appearance as Robin, and then a subsequent appearance as Nightwing in the first part of your show. I've always liked the first appearance in Detective Comics 38, and see it mainly in black and white when I think about it, because that's how I read it in Batman from the 30s to the 70s. It's a story that holds up quite well, in my opinion. I also liked hearing about the retelling, which I read years ago and had a little memory of, not because it was bad, but because I'm getting old. I always liked Dick and Tim's relationship as older brother, younger brother, so it made me smile that you chose that particular issue of Nightwing. I always got the sense that Dick was going to keep a closer eye on Tim. For one thing, he wasn't as justifiably pissy as Batman like he was when Jason took over. And for another, Jason died, which shook Dick as a character. One of his successors died in the line of duty, and I always wondered if Dick felt just a tad responsible for that, even though he ultimately was nothing to do with it. Perhaps if he'd had a closer eye on Jason, it would have turned out differently. Then again, it's better than Dick being somewhat responsible for the death of Jason's parents. (laughs) That's very true. Did that happen? Yeah, Detective Comics 526. Right. Dick Grayson has got Jason Todd pre-crisis. His parents, we've read this, dude. Did we? Yeah, we covered it on the show. It's from the gold cover. Detective Comics, Killer Croc. Okay. Don Newton, anyway. Uh, he's got Jason's parents right. tracking Killer Croc. Right. Killer Croc kills them. Okay. That's on Dick. <laughs> so, well done, Dick Grayson. You killed Jason Todd's parents. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the best move, I don't think. Mike continues, in the second part you kick things off with a new Teen Titans story and talks about two things that caught my interest. Like Andy, I always liked the fact that Terra was broken from the beginning. Some people, whether it's chemical or a matter of how they were raised, are just not right. The wires are crossed and the retconning of Terra's motivations at the hand as a Brad Meltzer never sat well with me. The other thing you talked about was Dick's Robin costume. Michael wondered if the layered approach Perez took to the outfit was for this issue in particular, but it wasn't. Perez did a lot with that costume over the course of his run, and sometimes Dick would be hanging around Tower in his green undershirt and shorts with the red tunic draped over a piece of furniture. While Perez was not the first artist to make that costume look more three-dimensional, he was the first one to do it for me as a reader. If you look at the previous issue, 38, the Robin costume is wonderfully portrayed as being cloth and not like Perez has drawn an action figure. I enjoyed hearing your discussion of the Lost Years miniseries as it was a story I remember seeing on the stands but paid little attention to because of my legend... Wait for it. D. 
very short attention span. This is the sort of story I like reading, so I will definitely have to track it down. I also look forward to reading the Batman and Robin issues you discussed, as they are the very next books I will be reading in my Grant Morrison Batman read-through, which is currently on pause, but I look forward to getting back to it. Many thanks to Michael for giving me a proper reading order. I feel like he really saved me some time and energy. Anyway, that's pretty much it. It's no longer Saturday through the miracle of time travel. It is now Friday evening, and I have already heard the next episode. Hope all is well. Best of the wife and kids, your friend, Mikey Mike B. Well, thank you very much, Michael. We appreciated that. Uh, I think Marshall Rogers was the one who made Dick's costume work best prior to Perez. But he did it differently. He didn't do the green tunic thing because there's that brilliant panel. I bet you don't remember it. From the Hugo Strange stuff. Right. Uh, where Dick is tracking Bruce down and he gets in and he's fighting the two hulking monsters that Strange has created. And he goes up to punch one of them in the face. Right. And as he's doing it, his chest expands so these tunic rips. Okay. And that's I think that's one of my all-time favourite Robin panels. I love that panel. Because it did actually show, look, his costume's real. Yeah. He's just strained and he's ripped the two yellow things that hold it together. Right. I love that. So for me, it was Marshall Rogers, maybe Neil Adams. Mm. But more Marshall Rogers, I think, that made Robin's outfit look convincing. And Burt Ward. Yeah. I think Burt Ward rocked that costume. I think it's usually Alex Ross that makes costumes look convincing. <laughs> Do you not think he's a bit too... Painterly. I think I think the, the the realisticness of him is what does sell it for me. Because the thing with Alex Ross is he's what is people's big complaints about him is he doesn't draw superheroes. He just draws people in costumes. Mm. That's what I like about them. Right. See, sometimes it works. I like his Superman a great deal. Yeah. Because I like that he draws Superman to look like a man who's in his mid to late 40s. Because mm. he likes a Superman that looks like he's lived a bit, doesn't he? Yeah. He doesn't like pretty boy Superman. So he probably doesn't like the new 52 very much, one would imagine. Uh, but, see, I'm not down on Alex Ross. I do sometimes think his costumes do all look like people mm. in costumes, rather than looking like the real deal. Yeah. But when he's on form, I, you know, I do think he's, he's not to be beaten, and he's at the top of his game. And I like to see him diversify a bit now as well. I loved his recent Battlestar Galactica covers. Yeah. And Six Million Dollar Man. And there was a Comics Monthly Monday recently, as we record this, I mean, it may not be recent by the time it goes up, where Michael was on about he would love to see a Six Million Dollar Man Incredible Hulk team-up comic, but the TV Incredible Hulk. Oh, yeah. And the minute that he said that, I could see the Alec Cross cover mm. with Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno and Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner on it. Yeah. Because he would, wouldn't he? Probably, yeah. And I think that would be uh, pretty yeah. awesome. It's a shame he doesn't do interiors anymore, either. Because he could paint the crap out of that book. yeah. He's, he's just Marvel, mate, that happen. Because I'm surprised he's, did it, he's not done a cover to this Star Trek Planet of the Apes thing, has he? No. I thought that would have been right up his alley. What was the last thing Alex Ross actually did? Was oh. it Justice? What, interior art? Yeah. No, we did an issue of something for Dynamite. Right. Oh, what was it called? He did the Kirby Genesis stuff, but I don't think he did... He did the interiors of the first issue of a series that Dynamite launched. Chris Robeson wrote it. Right. Who did Grounded after Straczynski threw his toys out the pram and said he wasn't doing it anymore. And I can't for the life of me remember what it's called. But he's done a lot of stuff for them with, you know, he did a couple of shadow covers for Garth Ennis' run. Yeah, he does all the covers at Dynamite. He does a lot of covers for that. That's the last sequential that I remember him doing. Right. Yes, they did an issue of that, issue so, number one. I don't think he'd done anything like a full, proper story until since Justice. He only did the first issue. 
Yeah. So he didn't follow it up with anything else. Speaking of, <laughs> some say that Michael, this one here, just thought he was the first person to email into the show. <laughs> and that Michael was actually mistaken. He was the second person to email into this week's show. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetta. I'm happy they're back. I'm happy yeah, <laughs> they're back. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't want to do things into the ground, do you? You don't want people to dex- to know what to expect. Yeah, you don't want people complaining that we use the same... <laughs> that we use the same gags. Yeah. Come on, let's be honest, we've been doing this for four years now. We recycle the same material every chance we get. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Stephen, it's not that bad. <laughs> Swear to me! <laughs> We're going out on a high. Uh, Luke Giaconetti emailed a just good Iron Man comics, which I like. Perm Dandy and Power Tide Michael. Hey, fellas, really enjoyed your just good comics episode. If you guys had sung, it would have almost been like a flashback to the good old days. Well, I think we sang enough last week. Yeah. Last week's episode was full of, of singing and swearing. It was. We were shocking last week. I know. We we, we got our little hands smacked <laughs> by the swirry godmother. <laughs> that bitch. <laughs> She's not fond of it. She thinks it's very potty-mouthed, quite frankly. I did want to give a couple of comments regarding the two issues of Iron Man 46... 146, sorry, and 147 you covered featuring Black Lash. Regarding Whiplash, Black Lash's real name, he used to be Mark Scott as an alias, but his birth name was Marco Scarlotti. Maybe Michelini had used the Scarlotti surname, but the editor said to use Scott instead? That's possible. Because mm. remember we mentioned that it had been changed yeah. throughout the issue. I don't remember a reason why Blacklash changed his code name other than when he started working for Justin Hammer and got an upgraded costume and equipment. Amusingly, during his tenure as one of Hammer's Muscle for Hire crew, Iron Man dubbed him and his cohorts the B-Team as his teammates included Blizzard, Boomerang and the Beetle. Eventually, Scarlotti would drop the Blacklash name and go back to Whiplash, adopting a strap and leather style costume in the process. Amusing considering your Fifty Shades of Grey joke. (laughs) <laughs> Scarlatti's ultimate end comes at the hand of Iron Man's sentient armour, with Tony on board. Helpless as the armour beats Whiplash to a bloody pulp and crushes his throat, killing him. Yeah, that was a pretty chilling read. That sounds pretty bleak. Was that when the armour gains sentient and falls in love with Tony Stark? Was that the same... What? Oh, have you not heard about that? No! Yeah, that, that happened. Oh, dear me. Is that up there with Teen Tony as top mistakes in Iron Man history? It could be, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Luke concludes this really is a fantastic era of Iron Man. One of the great hallmarks of this period was the consistency of detail from month to month and story to story, including Bob and Dave's attention to the details of the comings and goings of Stark International. It's very easy to binge read these comics, which I did years before that term was even invented. Very much looking forward to the rest of this mini-series of Just Good comics. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Uh, We've got one more for today. It's from Simon Richardson. Greetings from the other side of the Pennines. Ahoy, hoy, Michael and Andrew. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy. And Simon is a first-time email. (laughs) (laughs) We need a better siren than that. It's how low the budget is. We have to make the sound effects We have a budget? Yeah. The range of sound effects range from so basically anything you can do in your police academy like voice <laughs> yeah <laughs> just wanted to give some feedback on your wonderful and entertaining episodes my listening of this brilliant podcast is shall we say unique I didn't listen to them in the order they released 
Let me explain. I found out about your podcast through From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which your podcast is advised regularly. And I thought, excellent, a couple of fellow northerners, even if it's on the wrong side of the Pennines, talking about comic books. Perfect. I must check these dudes out. This was about nine or ten months ago, so I found your lovely site on twotruefreaks.com and was hit by the sheer number of broadcasts you have done. And I didn't know when you started. And so I thought, well, where do I listen? There's just so much to choose from. And so I've been listening to them in no particular order. He's a man after my own heart. None of this reading order filth. I heartily endorse listening to us randomly. You could be 15 one minute, and then 19 the next, and then you could be 17. That'd be really weird. It would be. My voice just changes. Yeah, that would actually be fantastic. For example, I just listened, says Simon, to your excellent coverage of the JLA Avengers crossover, and then celebration of 75 years of Robin and your love of Dick. Grayson. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, Simon says, I re- had the opportunity to purchase the JLA Avengers issues when they were first released, but passed. Which, looking back, was very silly, because I had to wonder why I passed on them. Simply, there was the fact that I wasn't into the JLA at the time. It turned out to be very ironic, as about a year later, I was a massive fan, thanks to the superb Justice League and Justice League animated series. Dum! But then I jumped back in time and listened to your epic Nightfall trilogy, as I just recently bought the new Nightfall trades with the extra content, including the Prodigal storyline. Just got up to the final part, Night End, I'm loving reading the trade and then listening to your coverage. All good stuff. And as I type this, I've just listened to your Transformers episode, which was something that interested me a lot, as I'm a massive fan of the UK Transformers comic and collected every issue. Well, nearly every issue. I started collecting with issue 38 and the final issue 332. It was interesting to hear from someone who was never interested in the book, and so your perspective was very unique, especially with you trying to get your head around the characters, and especially the storyline of the enemy within, which I have to say is okay, but they did get a lot better when the art and covers improved in leaps and bounds with people like Andy Wildman and Jeff Senior, and the great Simon Furman writing some great stuff. This leads me to suggesting a future subject for a future podcast, if I may be so bold. I would love to see you discuss, and your thoughts on, the character of Death's Head, who was someone who was first introduced into the Transformers UK book, and then, due to his popularity, got his own title, and later was integrated into the mainstream of the Marvel Universe, before they made a complete mess of him with the god-awful Death's Head 3.0. Anyway, I've rambled far too much, so I will say thank you for making my lunchtimes more fantastic. Thanks, lads. Simon in Leeds, Simon Richardson. Well, you're very welcome, Simon, and we're glad to have another Northern Chancer listening to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Death said? Death said. I don't know anything about Death said. I think I saw an action figure of him on Facebook, and that's about it. I think I saw that as well. Yeah. So whoever that is, is friends with both of us. Yeah. Sadly, we can't remember who that picture was. No. We do apologise, <laughs> person who posted the Death's Head picture. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm open for anything. As the graffiti <laughs> on the toilet wall says. <laughs> I wrote that myself. Is that who it is? For a good time, phone. <laughs> really sad when you're writing your own phone number on those things. I can't go to the bog ever again knowing <laughs> that. Uh, we'll knock it on the end there with, uh, with emails and uh, we'll be right back after these, these commercial messages. messages. Yes, absolutely. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. 
Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. One of the reasons given for the existence of the crises on Infinite Earths, and there is now a podcast, Tales of the ESA, do Crisis on Infinite Earths, hosted by Mike Bailey and Scott Gardner, you probably heard a trailer for it, was that the proliferation of alternative Earths, different versions of the same characters with multiple different backstories, was confusing to newer readers. Now, I can't honestly say that I think this is true, even if I understand the point. But when I was a newer reader in the early 1980s, how I was introduced to what is now called the multiverse was quite straightforward. See, back in the early 1980s, DC licensed their characters to Egmont Publishing, who produced a monthly comic called The Superheroes. I've mentioned this comic before, as it was where I read a lot of early Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow and various other DC characters that were the usual triumvirate of Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman. Issue 10, which is only cover dated 1981, has a gorgeous painted cover by Alan Craddock of the Batman and the Huntress and features a reprint of From Each Ending a Beginning, originally printed according to Mike's Amazing World in DC Superstars issue 17 from late 1977. This story, detailing how Bruce Wayne married Selina Kyle after she reformed, was also a tragedy of sorts. Despite it looking like Selina and Bruce had gotten their acts together, Selina's past returns to haunt her when she is blackmailed into helping an old crook, Silky Karnak, into robbing the Gotham Civic Centre. They are discovered by Batman who, despite being retired, fills in on occasion whilst Robin is out of town, and in the ensuing melee, Catwoman is shot and killed. Bruce and Selina's daughter, Helena Wayne, vows on her grave that she will find and bring to justice the man who caused her death, which she does, taking the name The Huntress, and by the story's conclusion, Gotham has a new hero. I don't remember at this stage if I bought this off the rack, as I did a few issues of that comic, or if I got it later from the in-book exchange in Blackpool where my grandparents would take me regularly to get second-hand comics, but I do know that it economically and efficiently introduces the concept of Earth 2, as well as telling a deeply moving story more akin to what I was used to reading in a Marvel comic. I very much liked the idea that there were stories where we saw what happened to Batman, Robin, et al. There was an unpredictability to Earth 2 stories that the Earth 1 counterparts didn't have. The story is reprinted in Batman in the 70s if you want to check it out, although the colouring is a little girish compared to the moody black and white of how I first read it. But I do remember that my reading of this coincided with a number of issues of Brave and the Bold that were set on Earth 2. Sadly, we can't talk about uh, that issue of The Huntress, because I completely forgot to tell Michael to read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry about that. My fault. I do apologise. I did mention a few weeks ago that we'd be coming back to The Brave and the Bold, as it was, again, as noted, one of the comics I'd buy after the A-list had been bought, and if I had any money left. Or we'd go for Marvel Team-Up, or Brave and the Bold, or Two-in-One, or DC Comics Presents... 
One of the best of these early issues that I bought was issue 182, Interlude on Earth 2, which we covered in our favourite Batman Stories Ever series. There must have been a run on Earth 2 stories in the pipeline at that time, because Brave and the Bold published issue 184, The Batman's Last Christmas, and issue 197, The Autobiography of Bruce Wayne, in quick succession. All of these are excellent issues, and all of them follow a kind of loose continuity that I appreciated as a kid, because I don't think continuity is a swear word. They also felt like the lead-in to the main event. The Brave and the Bold issue 200, a triple-size, square-bound anniversary issue that only cost double what a usual comic cost. Bargain! Mm-hmm. Especially when double was 50 pence! <laughs> 50p! Brand new! 50p! And this copy, lovely listener, is the one I bought in whenever the hell this came out. July 1983. I was 11. Cool. 11 years old when I bought this comic. Oh, granted, boss it for me. Mm. Let's not split hers <laughs> about who bought what. It's a bargain, though, isn't it? Yeah. Compared to today's prices. Absolutely. How much would this set you back nowadays? Like, seven quid. You think this is a seven dollar book? Probably. How much was like Batman 900 or Detective 27? I think that was about £7, wasn't it? Yeah. I think you're right. Was that $10, 7 quid, or was it $7 meaning about 5 or 6 quid? I don't know. I don't. It wasn't 50p. We don't really have conversion rates. They're just the same price. Yeah. yeah that's how it seems to work out nowadays, doesn't it? Look at, look at the field. Never mind the quality. Feel the width. Look at that, square bound. Look how thick it is. Look at that cover. The cover's just gorgeous. It's Batman and Batman. Uh, originally, as with the Superman Superman team-up from a few weeks ago, this was penciled in for a favourite team-up season that we never got around to. But the cover uh, is by Jim Aparo, and I think it's absolutely stunning. I think it's one of Aparo's best pieces of work, and he did a lot of pieces of work that were really good. Batman and Robin race away from the Golden Age Batmobile as the bat signal shines in the sky. In a lovely design touch, the signal is shone onto the chest of the Earth-1 Batman, whereas it doubles as the Yellow Oval, and he looms over the city in the background. Aparo does some quite interesting stuff here with this cover. Earth-1 Batman is leaner, and more muscular than his Earth 2 counterpart, who's stockier. There's a very 60s TV show vibe to the cover, which is unavoidable when you're depicting Batman and Robin running at the audience. The gold ink behind the two different Batman logos, the one from the modern day and the one from the 40s, and the anniversary logo gives the cover a very pleasing-to-the-eye look. And it just has this, this whole feeling of being something special doesn't it? Mm. With the gold. and Batman's cape is very small. Yeah. In, the, in that thing. And there's a special sneak preview, a 16-page premiere story starring the sensational new super team Batman and the Outsiders. Absolutely brilliant stuff, I think. Absolutely great. I, I really like the difference in the logos. Yeah, well, I've got that T-shirt with all the Batman logos on. No, oh, yeah. I'm gonna put, that is good. It's a great cover. Absolutely fantastic cover. Really, really good stuff. Smell of Brimstone, Stench of Death, was written by Mike W. Barr, with art by Dave Gibbons and Gary Martin. Part one is called Fire and Brimstone. Prologue in 1933 on two separate Earths. Two different versions of the same man is born. A man who never felt alone, and in fact felt there was always another version of himself out there, somewhere beyond the heavens. 
This man named Nicholas Lucian becomes a socially acceptable man on Earth 1, a pillar of the community. But on Earth 2, he follows the path of crime, becoming that modern Mephistopheles, Brimstone. Earth 2, 1955. Brimstone, recently released from prison, goes about pulling together a new crime gang, but he's not finding it easy, given that he's now a laughing stock after being put away by Batman and Robin. Brimstone has made some improvements to his arsenal since last time, however, including white phosphorus pellets that explode on contact. You think these will come in useful later? Anyway, he initiates a series of daring robberies that will attract the attention of the dynamic duo thanks to a series of hell-inspired clues, this time concerning the Nine Rings of Dante's Inferno. Batman deduces that the rings, when put together, form a bullseye pattern, which leads them to the Gotham Arena and an archery competition. After a battle full of K-Pows and Biffs, Brimstone comes out on top when the sprinkler system causes Batman to slip very careless of it. Still, Batman isn't too concerned. They recovered the money, and Brimstone promised a series of robberies, so they'll get another shot at it. Sure enough, at Police HQ there is a further clue from Brimstone. It's a charred piece of paper, and seems to yield no further clues, but an offhand remark from Robin reminds Batman that another word for Hades was Gehenna, the place where refuse was continually burned, which leads the duo to the Gotham Municipal Waste Disposal. It's a burned piece of paper where refuse was... It's a clue. (laughs) Robin is KO'd by Brimstone's men and placed upon a conveyor belt leading to a fiery death, which, of course, Batman cannot allow. But in saving Robin, Brimstone escapes again. The next clue, a fishing lure, a.k.a. bait, leads Batman and Robin to the Gotham Bait Company, the only local bait store that sells Helgramite. But Robin's impatience causes the duo to be captured. They are taken back to Brimstone's lure, where he puts two each in the back of the dynamic duo's head. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Actually, that doesn't happen. Although Brimstone's henchmen, to be fair, actually want that to be the way it goes down, don't they? They actually say, why can't we just shoot him? Brimstone instead concocts some elaborate scheme in which Batman is stripped of his utility belt and placed in a pit. Said pit will have a stream of lava pumped into it. As Robin watches, horrified, Brimstone cackles maniacally and Batman hunches over and prays for death. Well, that's what looks like he's doing, but in actuality, he's affecting his escape. An explosion rocks the hideout and then Batman swoops in punches the henchmen's lights out and socks Brimstone on the jaw. Batman explains to Robin that he'd been watching Star Trek recently where Captain Kirk made gunpowder and so Batman stole the idea. Using some potassium nitrate he procured from the sacks outside along with the charcoal and sulfur he scraped off the pit of the wall, Batman made a crude bomb. He used one of the nozzles pumping the lava into the pit as the holder and a strip of his costume provided the fuse. Robin asks what the hell a Star Trek is, as it's a good ten years away from being on the Earth. Everyone has a good laugh about sulfur being another word for brimstone. Brimstone himself is not amused, and hurls a phosphorus pellet, told you they'd come in useful later, at Batman, but Kel's surprise, it doesn't go off. Robin swapped them out for heartburn pills earlier. Batman punches Brimstone for no readily apparent reason, and our heroes drag him off to jail. <laughs> what do you think of that one? I, I really liked that. I thought that this was actually quite a lot of fun. But let, we'll get into the notes and then we'll get into the overall feeling of uh, the first chapter of Smell of Brimstone, Stench of Death. In addition to being uh, an exceptionally good splash page, 
of Batman squaring up against Batman. I don't think we're giving anything away to say the only time they actually meet in yeah. the story. <laughs> Which you were quite disappointed about, weren't you? I was. When he was reading it earlier on, he was going, so they don't actually <laughs> meet? Because, like, in the Superman one... They meet. Superman and Superman yeah. work together, don't they? Whereas in this one, Batman of Earth 1, our Batman's like, oh, what the hell went on here? Yeah. So, you know. It would have been cool if they met up. It would have been cool if they'd met up. And Golden Age Batman's like, oh, why is it so dark? Why, why are the panels so small and tight? I feel like they're nine of me on the page. I'm confined! <laughs> that's Because he does change his art style, doesn't he? Yeah. When he goes into part two, yeah. That's, that's quite good. Um, there's also a two-page prologue that perfectly explains what Earth 1 and Earth 2 are all about. In two pages? In two pages. Well, arguably, in one panel. Yeah. They actually give you the explanation of what Earth 1 and Earth 2 are about. No confusion at all. I like how in both worlds, there's good guy and bad guy, he still has the same hair, beard and moustache. Yeah. He's still the owl in both worlds. <laughs> he does look a little bit like the owl. He's, he's pinnacle of the community, yet he's still got a, a villain beard. <laughs> you can't judge somebody on the beard, man. Well, every bad guy has a beard. Every, every bad clone has a beard. Peter Parker's clone didn't have a beard. Evil Spark had a beard. Yeah. Evil Spark had a goatee beard. Seven million dollar man didn't have a goatee beard. Although he wasn't really a clone of Steve well, Austin. Well, he should either have a beard or smoke. Something that signifies he's well, the bad Well, the bad guy there, he, he Brimstone, he's smoke. He's pretty smoky. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty smoky. That's absolutely true. Brimstone and his henchmen refer to a past adventure where the Batman and Robin defeated him. I had a look on Mike's Amazing World and could find no reference to any such adventure ever happening. Yeah. So obviously between panels, between issues, when we weren't paying attention, Batman took this brimstone guy out and it's like, uh, it wasn't really worth talking about. Yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Creative backstory. Yeah, because it's like now every minute of their lives has to be chronicled, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas here you were like, yeah, he's had this adventure, we just didn't see it. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> he, he didn't miss out on much. Yeah, he didn't miss Br- out on Brimstone's a laughing stock. Yeah, he's, he's not a very good villain. <laughs> no, I, I love that they're the crooks at the beginning who find him and just wet themselves laughing at him. Well, if they wet themselves laughing at everyone who took Batman and Robin took out, yeah. you know, do you think the Joker would sit still for <laughs> If they laugh at the Joker's boner. <laughs> <laughs> Never fails to get a laugh. <laughs> Talking about recycling gags. <laughs> um, the name Brimstone would be recycled in Legends. Do you remember that? No. Do you remember anything we cover? I slept. Yeah. <laughs> so in Legends, they fought that big fiery creature called Brimstone and he killed somebody on the Suicide Squad. Was it oh, the Bronze right. Tiger? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's Brimstone in name only. Right. He kind of has a little bit of a look at this guy if you squint and look at him slightly <laughs> askew. But other than you're that, reading this comic. Can you read in this comic, yeah. Um, that's where the similarities end, though. <laughs> yeah. The name. Uh, Robin's line, Robin Hood stops Robin Hoods. Really? <laughs> really, Dick? That's the best you could come up with? Oh, dear me. The 1955 archery competition, $50,000 prize. That's quite nice. I did think that Batman being stopped by a sprinkler was pretty stupid. Yeah. I thought that... Uh, you know, even for a story set in the 1950s, time called on crime-fighting duo due to rain was uh, was a little bit um, pushing it slightly. He's not a game of cricket. He's the goddamn Batman. 
you, you can't fight crime when your costume's slightly moist. <laughs> and riding up. Yeah. <laughs> and carrying that cape around when it's wet. It, yeah, it probably yeah. is a bit of a hindrance. Alright, I will accept your no prize explanation. Although... But the 50s Batman cannot fight in the rain. Would, would the rain not put out the brimstone? That's a good point. Uh, yeah. They didn't think of that, did they? No. Well, well, he stopped doing his holy hole in a jokes, and he... He does not do a holy gag in this he issue. He tried he? expanding his range, but since he's so crap at making jokes that aren't holy holes, <laughs> he went back to them. Okay, alright, I will buy that. Brimstone's one of those villains who leaves clues to what he's doing, and then gets all bent out of shape when Batman figures them out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love that about criminals, because like, they're always there waiting as well. They expect them to... So what happens if Batman is genuinely stumped one day? Or he just doesn't get the clue? Or, or the, the... Yeah. Are they happy that they've got away with it? Or yeah. are they a bit upset? Jim Gordon just throws the memo in the bin and they just stand there waiting. Oh, gee, come on, Barge, just yeah. the Batman. What up? Yeah, well, exactly. What happens if one day the clue goes to Gotham yeah. HQ, but for whatever reason it doesn't make it to Gordon's desk. Or Royal Mail cock up the deliverer. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be Royal Mail in America, but... Gotham Mail. Gotham Mail is probably worse. Yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah, and it got, he goes home, yeah. and that one piece of mail only comes to his desk after he's got home for the day. Yeah. But that, that's a very good point. Are they pleased? Are they happy? Are they like, yay, we pulled one over on Batman? Or are they, like, secretly a bit upset that he's not showed up? Dar G boss, I really need to go for a whistle. No, hold position, you'll be here any moment. <laughs> Boss, I pissed my pants! <laughs> Bob's toes and knees have gone home! <laughs> toes and knees! Heads and good... shoulders. <laughs> there is other two heads, <laughs> man. And knuckles. <laughs> oh dear god. That's a gang just waiting to happen. It is, Heads, we... shoulders, knees and toes. <laughs> knees and toes! Knees and toes are twins? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's two of them. <laughs> Oh, stop it. This is getting silly. <laughs> uh, Robin. This brimstone is so serious. <laughs> Not in any way. Brim. <laughs> I'm packing in. Let's go to the next comic. No, it gets a bit more serious yeah, yeah. As, as we go along. Not quite yet. Robin almost dying on a conveyor belt uh, was done on the TV show. Except it was Bruce Wayne who was tied to the conveyor belt. And uh, I love the giant fishing rod. <laughs> yeah. I love the dialogue as well. Do you believe the president of this company liked fishing so much he had this giant fishing rod installed here? <laughs> well, what's that line for? <laughs> that pointed out, look, a giant fishing rod. <laughs> it's in case anyone pointed out, I wonder why there was a giant fishing rod there. That's, you know, I didn't... Because they didn't ever feel the need in the 50s comics to explain why there was a giant typewriter there, <laughs> yeah. that. Art Just, project. Yeah. <laughs> Media studies <laughs> project. <laughs> uh, note, after Batman gets out of the death trap, the penultimate panel of the comic, or the pen, or the pen penultimate, or anti-penultimate, whatever it is, the third from last uh, panel, Batman punches Brimstone, an act of violence that he does not need to partake in. Brimstone is no threat at this point, and because of this, Brimstone bangs his head... Yeah. And we will later find out spends 30 years in prison. Mm-hmm. And note the final insult. Batman and Robin drag him away by his beard. They're not holding oh, yeah. his hands. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> the end of this story sees Batman on the end of a quite severe lawsuit. Yeah. So so Batman pretty much curb stomps him yeah. twice. Yeah. 
Because what I was thinking about this, a much better part two yeah. would have been Brimstone coming out of his coma and suing the cape off him <laughs> for this. Because he's like, by that point, I was no threat. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not a bad guy. I'm not saying that I didn't kill all those crimes. But when he punched me at the end, I'd surrender. <laughs> I've spent 30 years in a coma because of that man. I want money. The Geneva Convention doesn't apply to Batman. Does it not? He can, he can treat his... Uh, his, his prisoners how he wants. Apparently so. Yeah. Because without that bit, we don't have a story. Yeah, I, 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 that one panel sets the rest of the story yeah. in motion. So Batman being a thug yeah. sets the rest of this story in motion. Because <laughs> he does, you know. He's not exactly a threat to him. I really like how that's just... Very casual, very thing, subtle. Yeah. yeah. Burly mentioned. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that's quite good. Um... Clearly evoking the feel and tone of not only 50s Batman comics, but also the 60s TV show. This could have been adapted untouched into an episode of the Brave and the Bold TV series, couldn't it? And it would have worked, yeah, wouldn't it? Bright and colourful and jam-packed with terrible puns. <laughs> this is a rollicking fun romp of a kind that they just weren't embarrassed to still do back in the 80s even though Jeanette Kahn and Dick Giordano were pushing for a grittier Batman. Mike W. Barr's script for this segment features all the tropes of the times giant props, wondering why bad guys don't just shoot Batman in the head inescapable death traps and Gibbon's art captures the era perfectly. Yeah you can say it's basically a runaround. the heroes get a clue locate Brimstone, he escapes the heroes get a clue, locate Brimstone, he escapes, repeat until page count expires. But I actually thought this was a lovely little nod to DC's past while setting up the future. I do think it would have worked better if it had been a 10 or 12 page story. Yeah. I think that would have further evoked the 1950s. It's a bit stretched at 19 pages. Mm. You know, one instance of them capturing him and him escaping... That could have been cut out, couldn't yeah. it? But on the whole, very enjoyable, mm. I thought. What did you think? I really liked it. It is fun, isn't it? Yeah. In that, you sat there just ripping the piss out of it kind of way. <laughs> you really should save all that for the show, you know? I uh, know. Or make notes. <laughs> just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, part two, there is an interlude... 1983, it turns out that in the fight with Batman, Brimstone struck his head and has been in a coma for 28 years. Experimental drugs awaken him, but learning that Batman is dead, he finds his hate craving a new form of expression. He remembers those thoughts from long ago. Another, Nicholas Lucian. When the doctors return, they find Brimstone, but absent of mind. Good interlude. I love the Joker as an old man. Why is he old? Because he's he's now 30 years older. So if he's 35 in the other story, then he's 65 now. Oh, okay. So this is still in the other Earth? Yeah. Right. This is still on Earth 2, but it's now 1983 instead of 1950-whatever it was. Oh, 1955, okay. was it? 1953? Something like that, wasn't it? So, yes. And as you pointed out, Dave Gibbons now puts lots more little panels yeah. on a page. That's probably why... The Joker does look like an old Bob Kane Joker, then. He does. And he's got a tooth missing. Yeah. Because at some point, Batman punched him just because. Yeah. <laughs> hey, 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 Joker, your neck looks slightly uh, twisted. Let me fix it. <laughs> no, that's, that's killing Joker, Batman. 
who laughs and laughs and laughs and then snaps his neck. <laughs> no, he doesn't! <laughs> Sorry, Grant. No, but if you, if you look at a certain panel upside down... <laughs> In the mirror. <laughs> backwards. Underwater. <laughs> the lights off. So let me tell you, if you do that, you are safe. <laughs> Part two is called Hell on Earth. A bomber has targeted Gotham, destroying buildings three times over the past 12 hours. Commissioner Gordon has called in the Dread Batman and provides him with a letter left by the bomber. It states, Don't want money, only Gotham's death. Batman analyzes the letter, which reveals traces of a powder ground from the Hellabore flower, which he tracks to the Lucian chemical plant. Nicholas Lucian, the owner, is an upstanding member of the community, but upon his arrival, Batman is surrounded by hoods and told via Tannoy that this is a rematch between he and Brimstone, that Batman needs to fight through the hoods to locate him. Batman is confused, having never met Brimstone, but having no choice, he fights, although these feckless idiots do more damage to each other than the Batman. Brimstone taunts Batman again, informing him a clue is awaiting him on one of the goons, and Batman spies a book in the back pocket of a man who clearly can't spell his own name. This clue, a Greek dictionary, takes Batman to the Hellenic Club, where he meets Brimstone once again for the first time. This time, Batman is drugged before being dumped in the pit, and Brimstone attempts to kill Batman using exactly the same method as before, but this time Batman escapes by using the gas from the lava to cause an explosion, which he generated from a spark from the cables of the CCTV camera Brimstone was watching him through. Bit more convoluted this time, wasn't it? Batman escapes, punches Brimstone, whose head bangs on the wall. When he awakens, Lucian has no memory what occurred, and Batman isn't entirely sure either. Elsewhere, on Earth 2, an elderly Nicholas Lucian lies in a hospital bed, aware of the world around him, but unable to move or speak. A living death. Which was very cruel. Yeah. <laughs> to give this all Batman's fault. It's torture. <laughs> uh, exactly how did Lucian transfer his mind from one Earth to another? I don't know. He, he demonstrated no such ability to do that in part one. I kind of like not knowing. You kind of like not knowing? Yeah. So basically, right, his entire theory was, I think, I have no proof, but I think there's another me on another world out there somewhere. Alright. Okay. Did Donnie Darko ever say how he travelled through time? He did not, no, but it's implied yeah. in the film yeah. how he did it, if you watch it careful. Yeah. And exactly how did Christopher Reeve go back in time in Richard Matson's Somewhere in Time, or Big Time Return? Okay. He essentially wills himself back through time. Yeah. So this could essentially be of a similar bent. Yeah. He's just willed his consciousness into the mind of another him. I just like not knowing, because let's be honest... There's, there's not really many answers which would be satisfactory. True. So just by leaving it, you yeah. just go, yeah, you just did it. Yeah. Accept it, move on. All right, I'll go, all right, no <laughs> prize. Two in one show. Yeah. I'll give you a baldy next, like he's doing the Superman comics. Lucian is now mad spending 28 years in a Batman-induced coma and starts blowing up churches. Does this seem a tad random to you? No. Oh, okay. He's blowing up... Yeah. Religious buildings. Yes. Quite a hellish act, if you ask me. Uh, oh, very good. Yeah. Oh, right, we were right off my head. Well done. Yeah. I knew there was a reason I kept you around. <laughs> Other than, you know, your obvious comedy value. Yeah, of course. <laughs> comedy sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, love the scene where Bruce Wayne brushes off the woman who's been waiting months to get a date with him. Because she flat out states, you know, we're going to wind up back at my place later. 
He just blew off a definite shag. Yep. You must love being Batman. Because <laughs> surely this would have waited till afterwards. Is, is he not like Arnie? When I punch bad guys, I come. <laughs> oh, I hope not. That's that. No, that's... No, no. <laughs> Just no. Gibbons art is fantastic throughout part two. As Michael's pointed out, he does make it a lot darker. The panels are a lot smaller in many places. It's just a grittier, grimier world, 1983. Um, but the shot of Batman swinging over Gotham in numerous places is simply stunning, mm. largely because of the colouring, but particularly the bottom of page 26, where it's just blue. It's just the background's just blue, and Batman and Commissioner Gordon in black and white. Yeah. And it's... I don't know why they decided to do that for that, those two panels. But it looks cool. But it looks absolutely fantastic, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. I think the, the art style is a massive change as well. Yeah, given it's the same guy. Yeah. It, uh, and there's an upshot. That's a great shot of Batman. Yeah, upshot of Batman like somebody shining a torch under his face. Mm. Which is very Neil Adams without being slavish to Adams. Which is, yeah, absolutely fantastic shot of Batman. And I love that after the fight... And Batman's like confused. Rematch? I've never met this guy. Yeah. What's he talking about? So after the fight with these guys, Batman gets the clue by spotting that one of them's carrying a book, <laughs> and he's like, "There's no way in hell you're trying to convince me this guy can read." Yeah. Which I thought was very dismissive of him. Mm. You know, just because he's a crook, just because life have <laughs> taken him down uh, an unfortunate path doesn't mean that he doesn't appreciate the finer arts of, of the, the Greek dictionary. <laughs> Alright, I'll give you that him having a Greek dictionary seemed a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah. But I just love that Batman is, there's no way that dude's a reader. Not having it. Judgmental Batman. Yeah. <laughs> so he turns out to be right. <laughs> That's what's funny about it. I thought that was hysterical when I read yeah. this. I don't think I found it hysterical as a kid. I think it just went right over my head, but uh, I thought it was hysterical here. Brimstone's trap didn't work last time. So why try it again? I don't know. Because it's exactly the same yeah, trap. Yeah, He doesn't really differentiate it in many ways. I still don't know how you, you can transport lava. <laughs> uh, well, in the other one, he was pumping it in through... The, the nearby volcano that Gotham's built on. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to come up with a rational explanation and then I realised what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I gave up. I, mean, I do quite like how Batman just turns into MacGyver <laughs> to get out of it. I love it when Batman's MacGyver. <laughs> yeah. Alright, what have I got at hand? I've got some string. Uh, I can pull a little bit of this covering off this wall. And I've got a Swiss Army knife. And I've got some chewing gum. And, uh, oh, oh, look, I've got, a, I've got a cotton bud. What can I make from all these things? Yeah. Oh, a bomb! <laughs> Brimstone's insane and the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome but he doesn't even try to vary the trap does he? No. He doesn't even try to do anything different. He even gives Batman a clue on, as to how to get away. Well may, maybe he thinks that this Batman won't, won't, won't escape. Why would he think that this Batman was any less intelligent than the other Batman? This Batman kind of seems more smart than the last Batman. He does a bit. Yeah. So, yeah, alright, okay, whatever. I mean, he's a bit of a prat, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But, alright, excellent final page, artistically speaking. The shot of Batman swinging over Gotham City with the other Earth 2 Batman in the background. Yeah. 
Um, so they are. They do share a page. They do share a page metaphorically. I, I, I didn't think much of the Scooby Doo ending, where he bangs his head against a wall and then suddenly he's oh I I don't remember where I am. <laughs> well, that was a bit Scooby Doo. I didn't also understand how Batman thinks of this as being his greatest challenge. He gets out of the pit without breaking a sweat. Let's be honest. Yeah. Brimstone's no real match for him. Despite dialogue where Batman states that Brimstone is his equal in brains, my superior in cunning. I don't see any evidence of that <laughs> in this story. And he never even finds out what's going on. Yeah. Batman's completely clueless in this issue as to what any of this story is about. Mm. Isn't he? completely clueless as to anything that's happening. I don't see how something that essentially he just brushes off as irrelevant can be his greatest challenge, which is what he says at the end, I faced my greatest challenge and I won. <laughs> and you're like, no, you're going to get up in the morning, Batman, and you're not going to remember that this even <laughs> yeah. happened. This is for the black case book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he may make a diary entry, met some guy called Brimstone today, and they just forget about it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I do not believe that this is his greatest challenge. Ever. It would have been even funnier if he was faking it at the end and he just got off scot-free just because he's good at acting. <laughs> well, that's just another thing, isn't it? I mean, I do genuinely love this issue. So, lovely listener, don't think we're taking the piss out of it. Mercilessly. Uh, and I like, you know, another couple of things. I like the In Memoriam, Brave and the Bold, 1955-1983 on the last page. Because mm. nowhere else in the comic does it mention that this is the last issue of yeah. Brave and the Bold. There's no text page or anything like that. We get a nice plug for Batman and the Outsiders, and we get a nice 15-page Batman and the Outsiders story, which is very nice. So is, is that what it became? Did this turn into yeah, the Yeah, this turned into Batman and the Outsiders. So it was a permanent team-up book. Yeah. Right. So, but, you know, it doesn't, it's very odd for this era for them not to at least have a column saying yeah. this is the last issue of Brave and the Bold. The story is only okay, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Barr's using the technique of mirroring a lot of the events in part one in his second part whilst upping the body count. It doesn't explain how Lucian can mind swap, nor how he knew there was an Earth 2. Mm. But like you say, alright, we'll accept that because it's you don't have to explain it. You know, it makes sense, whatever. It doesn't explain the Looney Tunes ending, which I've just mentioned, and all of that, but the bottom line is, mind controlled or not, Nicholas Lucian did all of this. Yeah. Nicholas Lucian blew up churches. How the hell did he prove his innocence in a court of law? <laughs> Batman can't testify he wasn't in his right mind because he never found out what was going on. Yeah. At no point did Batman find a clue or some inkling that he was being mind controlled because Batman knows there's an Earth 1 and an Earth 2. Mm. So then Batman could have gone in and said, yes, he was being mind controlled by somebody on Earth 2 and the, the jury would have gone, we believe you, Batman, despite <laughs> that story sounding ridiculous as hell. So how did he get away with that? Uh, so basically, yeah. like you say, he just basically said, uh, no, I don't remember anything, Batman, sorry. <laughs> and Batman goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and a court of law goes, okay. <laughs> and the police go, okay. And they just buy this. The Joker's just stood surrounded by dead orphans, <laughs> and he goes, oh, I was possessed by my own thorn counterpart. No, but he doesn't even know that. <laughs> that the Joker stood there surrounded by dead orphans and just goes... I have no memory of how this happened. <laughs> how did this bloody knife get into my hand? Where have all these dead children come from? And Batman going, 
All right, Joker, I believe you. Yeah. It makes no sense. <laughs> Despite that, I really do like this because it's just so much fun. Yeah. And Gibbons' art uh, is perfectly suited to both eras. And they just don't make anniversary comics like this anymore. So I'm willing to give all of that ridiculousness a pass. Yeah. Because I just thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And sometimes that's enough, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. What did you think of part two? I, I really liked it. <laughs> I like how much it contrasted, yet yeah, it was the same story. Yeah, it contrasted but complemented, which was presumably the point. Yeah. In that it was showing you the difference between the 1950s and now. And I liked how you can either argue that Batman curb stomped <laughs> Brimstone. Uh, or, no, I don't think that's an argument. Yeah, or Brimstone has just got very bad luck and keeps... He's got the look of a stormtrooper. <laughs> he's tagging Bink. Yeah, yeah. Every time he's hit in the head, his personality switches <laughs> over on Earth 2. He's King Tut <laughs> from the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight he's going to fall over in the shower, bang his head, <laughs> and he's going to become Earth 1, Earth 2, yeah, whatever yeah. Earth. He goes and blows up a church, but a piece of rubble hits him on the head. It's like, oh, how did this Oh, happen? I don't remember. Happens to the best of us. <laughs> oh dear me. Uh, anniversary issue that this is, Batmite gets a, a page where he talks about um, basically having his own comic. That's it, really. Does Batmite have his own comic? Not at this point, no. no. I don't think so. And uh, Batman and the Outsiders get a preview. Uh, by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo, in which uh, every single member of the Outsiders is introduced. But by continuity, this issue of Outsiders that you're seeing here is actually takes place after something like issue four. Okay. Because issue one of Batman and the Outsiders shows him gathering the team together and getting them all together. Right. Whereas in this story, they're all together. Right. So you're actually reading this story out of continuity. Which probably didn't bother anyone at the time, but nowadays <laughs> would make readers' head explode. Yeah. Because they can't handle stuff like that. Anyway. So, yeah, Batman quits the Justice League. Superman, of all people, just really doesn't look concerned. Yeah. On the cover of Batman and the Outside as well. And everyone else is, oh, oh, and Superman's like, thank God, never did like you. We can put the rulers away now. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really did genuinely enjoy that, even though I, I, we took the mech. Yeah. But it was fun, wasn't it? It was. It was very good. And it was uh, so fun that we could take the mech out of it. Yeah, that is. I think you can only affectionately piss take something that you genuinely care about. Yeah. And I do heartily recommend, if you see that in the cheap bins, and I never have, mm. so I don't know if this is an issue that's that's kept its value for whatever reason, but if you see it in the cheap bins, I do urge you pick it up, because it, it is a very, very fun comic book. Looking back on the comics of the 1990s, it's quite clear that, despite the reputation the decade has, there's a lot of interesting material being published in the mid to late part of the decade. Superman was doing the electric boogaloo. Heroes Reborn was reaching the end of its one-year experiment, granted with mixed success. And Spider-Man was post-clones pre-reboot, an era nowhere near as bad as you may have been led to believe. The Bat titles were all of decent quality. Dark Horse was spearheading the Star Wars Renaissance, and the Aliens books were just as enjoyable. And even Image comics were branching out with books by David Mack and Brian Bendis. 
Of course, crossovers were still the big thing. Some things don't change. And one of DC's most interesting ideas was to create a unified umbrella theme for their annuals. Throughout the 90s, they had Year One, Elseworlds, and Armageddon 2001, amongst others. Some ideas were naturally better than others, but the best tended to be the ones that came up with a basic premise and let the creators run with it. One such idea was Pulp. Heroes, the DC annual event that ran across the line in 1997. What stuck out about the Pulp Heroes was the covers. Each one was designed to evoke the dime store pulp paperbacks of the 30s and 40s, and pretty much every one of them is gorgeous, irrespective of the quality of the actual story, which were, as is the norm with this kind of thing, hit or miss. Our next pick, Hitman Annual Number 1, was originally one of the choices when we did our creator spotlight on Garth Ennis, which we left off from that when it got whittled down. And then we were just going to do a Western comics episode yeah. by uh, Garth Ennis, which would have included Saint of Killers and Just a Pilgrim, but likewise that never saw the light of day either. Who knows, maybe one day we'll get around we to it. We've never done the Saint of Killers. We've never done the Saint of Killers. Um... Sure, we have. No, we haven't. Have we Again, we talked about it, right. doing Saint of Killers, okay. as part of, and do Just a Pilgrim and do this, but we never actually did it. Just a Pilgrim's the future one, isn't it? Yes, Just a Pilgrim was something he did for, I don't even remember what company it was, because I don't think they publish anymore. Mm. But yeah, we never actually did Saint of Killers. Right, okay. We did talk about it a lot, Yeah. so maybe we'll still do it. We've, still, we've got shows to fill. Yeah. Let's do Saint of Killers at some point. More Preacher. Can't get enough. Of Preacher, in my humble opinion, yeah. Uh, Hitman Annual 1 was one of the best of the Pulp Heroes crossovers. Hitman was one of DC's best titles of this era anyway. And one of the few times writer Garth Ennis worked within the confines of the Shared Universe concept. Most of the time Ennis just ignored the directives of the DCU, didn't he, for final... Go on. Which is funny, considering Hitman... It was the best thing to come out of a bad crossover. Yes, it was. I mean, Hitman itself came out of um, Bloodlines, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was easily the best thing to come out of Bloodlines. But for final night, you just had them all sit around in the bar, having <laughs> yeah. a chat, and just generally ignoring that the rest of the DC were running around trying to reignite the sun. Yeah. And Tommy Monaghan and co were just knocking back a few beers. I love how you say that. It's so, so trivial, though. They were already trying to reignite the sun. <laughs> well, just Tuesday in the DC universe, <laughs> yeah. To be honest, uh, one million. Yeah, uh, and it's basically just skewered the idea of crossovers in the first place, as well as taking the piss out of fandom. Yeah, a little bit of needling of us in that story, but it was funny. Yeah, so we gave him a pass. Uh, the big surprise about Hitman Annual Number One, therefore, is that Ennis embraces this idea, doesn't he? Yeah, he embraces the pulp nature of the material, and that he not only does he take part in it, but he tells an incontinuity story. Which I think a lot of them weren't. Well, that's because this is very his bag. Yeah, he basically, the pulp genre he chooses is the spaghetti western, hmm. which is right in his uh, his wheelhouse. Was Did they not do a big thing when they did the weird western tales? Or was that just for this? Uh, did they do a couple of these as weird western tales, do you mean? No, I, th- I, I could have sworn they did the weird western tales as a... Line wide. Weird Western Tales was a comic yeah. series back in the maybe it's just 50s this and I'm confused. So that's just him hearkening back to an old DC comic. Yeah, but do you think they've done a Weird Western Tales crossover recently? No, but back in the Pulp Heroes. Yeah, the, I don't know. The Weird Western Tales was a comic. Yeah, wasn't Jonah Hex. In it was Jonah Hex. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. Well, maybe they did more than one Weird Western Tale. 
Yeah. I don't know, I'd have to go back and have a look, because I don't think I've read all the Pulp Heroes comics. I think I've read Superman, Batman, Hitman. Oh, yeah, Superman one, yeah. because yeah, he was Electric Blue Superman. Yeah, and he did the cover where he was wearing the jacket yeah. over his... because the covers are brilliant. Yeah. All the covers for this, this run are fantastic. I would like to see these published in some kind of portfolio thing without all the logo crap, because mm. they are brilliant. As with all Pulp Hero covers, Hitman Annual Number 1 is gorgeous. Painted by Laurel Blackman, it shows the Hitman, Tommy Monaghan, leaning against a desert grave marker, casually lighting a cigarette. Guns jut forward from the corners of the cover and a skeleton covered in money lies before Tommy. As Michael's pointed out, it also says Weird Western Tales down the left-hand side as a subtitle. What do you think of that cover, Michael? I really like it. It's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. But I don't think we're giving anything away yeah. to say that we, we love this issue generally, I think. Um, a coffin full of dollars <laughs> was written by Garth Ennis with art by Carlos Esquerda and Steve Pugh. Sat in Noonan's one Saturday night watching the good, the bad and the ugly, the evening is interrupted by a phone call offering Tommy a job in Texas. Tommy is intrigued by the offer and the money, and so next up, Tiburon. Upon arrival, Tommy ingratiates himself into the graces of the local mobster, Santiago, by blowing up his truck when a group of his men harass Tommy walking into town. The sheriff, Halliday, turns a blind eye. After all, it is he that hired Tommy. He explains to Tommy the local legend of the coffin full of dollars. Two million of them, to be exact, buried in a desert grave along with thousands of other coffins. Apparently, during the Civil War, a gang, we'll call them the Devil's Hole Gang, robbed a train, although they never shot anybody. The money was hidden here and the gang took off for Mexico until the dust settled. They never came back. The gravesite is now being developed by a big man with an affinity for beachfront property and turned into a mall. Sheriff Halliday doesn't want Santiago to get the money and has paid off all the builders, but Halliday has gotten wind of Santiago's new henchman, a man named Manco, the fastest draw Halliday has ever seen. Whenever there's that kind of trouble, the super kind of trouble, Halliday has been told to call in Tommy Monaghan and he's willing to pay $90,000 for the privilege. Could almost buy her own ship for that. In the bar later, Tommy meets up with former Urban paratrooper George and overdrinks the two men bond over their shared war experiences. George tells Tommy he qualifies for no pension or benefits as his mission to destroy Iraqi ammo dumps exposed him to a gas that crippled him, but the orders were lost. Life, George points out, ain't like the movies, dog. The next day, Santiago comes to town with a spy holiday planted in his camp. Manco casually lights a cigarette with a lighter, draws his weapon, blows the spy away, and places the gun back in his holster before the lighter can fall. He catches it and places it back in his pocket. Tommy decides to not take the job. Halliday doesn't take this too well and innocently lets it slip to Santiago's men that the man who blew up their truck is leaving town. A saloon gunfight ensues, but Tommy is outnumbered, beaten, has his hand run over by a truck, is chained and dragged behind the truck, and then left in the desert to die. George follows them from a distance and picks Tommy up, nursing him back to health. Tommy asks George to do two things for him. One, get him a weapon, and two, make a phone call. A few days later, Tommy is delivered a package, George's arm. Tommy is now seriously pissed off. 
Back in town, Santiago's men and the sheriff's men are locked in a showdown with Manco. Manco was also in George's platoon, and the same gas that crippled George made Manco what he is, making Santiago's men no match for him. Holiday, however, has fled the scene, his building snitches having reported that they have found the coffin full of dollars. Tommy arrives in town, blood in his eyes, and is greeted by Manco and Santiago's men, and George strapped to the bonnet of the truck. It's not looking good for Tommy, armed as he is only, with this Civil War pistol that George got him. But who should show up asking, were you going to die alone? Why Nat the Hat, armed to the teeth? He tosses Tommy a Uzi and the bullets start to fly. With the men falling to Nat's superior firepower, Tommy frees George, but Manco is waiting for him. As the men face each other down on the main street, they prepare to draw. There may be some squinting as well, who can tell? As the seconds count down, the draw is about to begin and Tommy knows this could be the end. Until Manco's head explodes like a watermelon drop from a ten-storey building. See, Nat snuck around the back of the truck whilst all eyes were on Tommy and Manco. George strangles Santiago and Tommy and Nat head to the graveside where they find Halliday weeping over the coffin. The money had long ago disintegrated. Tommy and Nat take pity on Halliday. Nah, I'm just funning with you. They bury him alive in the grave, then walk off whistling. <laughs> what a great comic. Yeah. Just nitpicky's note that is not a Tiburon in Texas. There is one in California. Right. Which is fine, because there isn't a Gotham City either. <laughs> uh, Tiburon apparently means shark. Okay. I do research. Yeah. Well, by which I mean I do that on the internet <laughs> and, and see what comes up. Opening Splash is very reminiscent of a Dollars movie poster. The opening Splash is great. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty sure that's the point as well. It looks like a photo that's been drawn over, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't look like art, art. Who is that Splash? Is that a square or a pew? That looks like... You can't really tell from a hand and a holster, can it you? It looks like Steve Pugh. You think? Yeah. All right. Uh, Nat and Tommy spend the first few pages debating which of the Dollars films are the best. And, and they then, just talk through the teeth. Yeah, can you talk through your teeth? Which is very Tarantino. We're going to die course. alone. Yeah, because they set up the ending, don't they? Yeah, yeah. We're die alone. Which is the good, the bad and the ugly. Go you never watched the, the Dollars trilogy? I've seen the first one. Is that all? Yeah. I love the Dollars trilogy. To be honest, I preferred Outlaw Josie Wells. Oh yeah, Outlaw Josie Wells is a better film. I preferred serious, more realistic westerns than... Well, the spaghetti westerns were very, yeah, were very comic book and fun. Yeah, yeah. But Good, the Bad and the Ugly is brilliant. I like all three of them. But Good, the Bad yeah. and the Ugly... But yeah, The Outlaw Josie Wells is a better film. Mm. But uh, you can't knock the Dollars trilogy, surely. <laughs> there are two kinds of men in this world. Those with guns... And those who dig. And those who dig. You dig. You dig. <laughs> <laughs> there, are See, those you know, who, there are those who like Eastwood movies... And those who are dweebs. And the what's it? The bit with the donkey. Come on, the bit with the it's donkey is hysterical. Apologise to the mule. Apologise to the mule. <laughs> See, this, this is what being raised by you does. I've never seen a movie where I can quote it. <laughs> You've never seen them, but you know them all. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I do apologise. See, my mule got to thinking you were talking to him. <laughs> My mule can't remember how many bullets it fired. <laughs> <laughs> You're mixing. <laughs> See, my mule here has a 44 Magnum, <laughs> and he's going to blow your head clean off. Different film, <laughs> different Clint Eastwood movie. Although it, it could be Dirty Harry, and you know he's an ass. 
That's how he's been reincarnated. That's, that's why he's dirty. <laughs> Harry Callahan is that reincarnated mule <laughs> from the Dollars movie. <laughs> that's actually quite funny. I like that. Uh, cool guys don't look at explosions, apparently, because Tommy just walks away casually after he throws grenades into Santiago's men's truck. I, I, I love how Esquizera draws the Mexicans. most stereotypical Mexicans. Yeah. The sheriff... Uh, has mirrored shades and you know, a granite-hewn face. Reminds me a little bit of the sheriff from Convoy. Yeah. Played by Ernest Borgnine. Okay. You know, Dominic Santina. Okay. Except he's an actor, so he played a bit of a bastard in Convoy. Yeah. Yeah, that's just how it goes. Primarily a romp, isn't it? Let's yeah. be honest. One of Ennis's key themes, the treatment of soldiers, is hit upon in the pages where George is introduced. Tommy takes an instant shine to the man simply because of his urban all-the-way tattoo, which uh, also serves the dual purpose of making it quite clear later on whose arm has been cut off. Yeah. Uh, which is the moment of resolve for Tommy, isn't it? That's the moment where the camera would pull back and Tommy would be... <laughs> Realises that a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, we switch to Steve Pugh. Yeah, we switch to Steve Pugh for the middle section of the art, which is a little bit jarring. To be honest, I'm not a big fan of it. I don't mind Steve Pugh. I didn't like it switching in the middle of this. Yeah, yeah Esquizera did a great job on it. I'm not saying Steve Pugh didn't. It's just, if it was either all Esquizera or, or all, all Pugh, Pugh that yeah. would have been all better. It would have been fine, but switching to Steve Pugh for part two... And then switching back to Esquizera for part three, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to disagree Esquizera with that. Esquizera sets a better atmosphere for westerns than Pew does. Yeah, well, they both tag teamed on Set of Killers, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So, you know, maybe he's just coming back to that. But yeah, I, I do think Esquizera suits the western milieu more than Steve Pew does. Mm. Like you say, yeah, if the art had been all of them. All of Pew or all of Esquizera, we probably wouldn't have had a problem with Steve Pew's art at all. Yeah. But slap bang in the middle of the comic, it just changing art styles. Yeah, it, it is a bit a bit off. Manco shooting the spy, though, is a great beat. Yeah. As the reaction shot of Tommy just spitting out his cigarette and then going, ah, I'm, I'm not sticking around for this job. Yeah. It is really cool that basically he doesn't throw the lighter in the air, which I kind of, I think I implied in the synopsis. He lights the cigarette, then just drops the lighter mm. casually, pulls his gun out, shoots the guy through the head, and then catches it before it's even fallen Yeah, a couple of centimetres, doesn't he? Mm. Absolutely great scene. I thought it was really good. I like the following sequence where he, he holds the gun under the table. Yeah. Ah, that's nice. This is the sound of a wolf pointing towards your <laughs> testicles. Or he's pulling a hand solo. Yeah. Tommy shot first. Yeah. Actually, he doesn't, does he? No, he doesn't. He just lets him go. Uh, but he does shoot first later on. Yes. So. And here we have our first little foreshadowing that Halliday isn't that good of a guy. Well, did you not think that from the beginning? I kind of liked him in the beginning, to be honest. Did you? Yeah, the sheriff that don't take no shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all right, but then it turns out that he's he's only after the money and doesn't give a toss, really. Which is kind of the uh, from the beginning. Yeah, I don't think it came as a surprise. Yeah, that the sheriff was a bad guy because they always are in these stories, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. 
redneck sheriffs are always the bad guys. That's <laughs> just the way it goes in these things. It's All the cl- bumbling buffoons like Buford T. Justice. Yeah, yeah. Well, when the bumbling feels, you know they're going to be good guys. <laughs> or oh, just inept. Yeah. Like the ears here. Uh, the only bit of this that doesn't hold up is on page 38. Santiago's men capture and torture George to find out where Tommy is, right? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't speak, he doesn't say anything, but so they cut off his arm because they know that George's friend would find and tell Tommy. Right? Yeah. So why not just follow George's friend and kill Tommy there and then? Yeah, fair point. Because they don't give a toss about... Uh, well, maybe they want Tommy to be in a good enough shape to uh, duel... With Manko. With Manko. Why take that risk? Why? Why? Do the bad guys always let the egos <laughs> get in the way of winning? You know, if somebody puts on the table to me as a corrupt bad guy, right. two million dollars in this coffin, now, you can risk it all by having Tommy Monaghan go up against your guy. Now, your guy's probably going to win. Or you can just put a bullet in his head in the cave and let him die out there where nobody knows where he is. I'm going for option B. Yeah. But <laughs> maybe I just don't have the ego to be a super criminal. Because mm. I would be like, no, I don't want anyone to know I did this. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. As we've said before, if I was the purple man, I'd be living a very modest but well-off lifestyle somewhere by only taking what I needed when I needed it. Yeah. From different banks all over the place, except where I live. Like, what's his face? Um, Parker. Yeah. Who only robbed the bank when he when needed When he needed to. the money. Yeah. And I would not be robbing the banks of the towns where <laughs> I lived. Yeah. It's like, if you know, you don't go and rob a bank in Metropolis because you know Superman's there and you live in Metropolis. Yeah. You go and rob a bank in some town that doesn't have a superhero in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's not heard of. Yeah. And then you come back <laughs> home to Metropolis. Yeah. Where you live a quite happy life. <laughs> and Superman chases regular bad guys. You go, ah, Superman, he's quite cool. Uh, I think I'll go to the arse end of nowhere and rob another bank. <laughs> That's how you do it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. Don't go to anywhere that ends with the city. Yes! Don't go to anywhere that has a superhero. Yeah. Moral of the story. <laughs> uh, Nat showing up at the end is fantastic. Yeah. I really did like Nat just arriving at Because that was set up really quite subtly. He says, get me a gun, make me a phone call. Mm. And then Nat shows up and saves the day. The lot that they've seen beforehand are all the police line up and then, oh, where's Halliday? And it's just a single panel of him in the car. <laughs> Speeding away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Just saying two million dollars. Two million dollars. Yeah. yeah, very, very, very funny. Um, I do love the end as well. You've got the whole build up to the fistful of dollars type um face off in the middle of the street at high noon. Yeah. Lots of shots of eyes squinting and hands <laughs> holding over the holster and then the next page Manko's head just blowing up. Yep. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I I thought the scene were um Tommy shoots the Mexican dude was was great though. So the bit where you ran over my hand though that was funny, and then he just starts laughing and keeps building up the laugh until he just shoots him. And that 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 face he's pulling and yeah, it is quite scary. Yeah, he is quite uh, he's quite pissed off with him. <laughs> and then um, George strangles Santiago. Mm. And Tommy's just like it's good therapy for him. Let's let's leave him to it. Yeah, and off they go. And then Halliday finds the coffin full of money. And as as though he's playing Raylan Gibbons, Tommy just stands behind him. Mm. So like, yeah, it's all disintegrated. And you're like, of course, it's paper money. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely fine. I loved this issue. A really rather fun 
quite dense story. Yeah. Judging by the, the length of the synopsis. Breezes along thanks to the usual Ennis mix, dash of black humour, a sprinkle of characterization, and a heap of the old ultraviolence. As we've mentioned, both Michael and I thought the change in artist for the chapter in the middle was a tad jarring, not because either artist is bad, but because Esquire is better suited to this than Pew. Uh, this was great. I especially yeah. love the ending where you think they're going to cut him a, a break and then they, yeah. they bury him alive. Under all the dirt as well. Yeah, and then they, they've, they've managed to get a dumper truck from somewhere. It's a building site. Build, it's true, it is a building site. And they uh, cover up his coffin mm. and walk away going... <laughs> yeah. I think what, what it is, it's it's something that Ennis wanted to write. It's, yeah, it's... It's what he enjoys. And so because his heart was in it, it's such an easy, enjoyable read, whereas with with a lot of stuff that Ennis doesn't want to write or he's doing the crossover, yeah. it's a bit of a chore to read. Well, he got to write a western, didn't he? A western about the army. Yeah, with the army in it. So it's... it's That's like two boxes ticked. It's basically touching all of his... Uh, yeah. His main things that he loves, isn't it? A modern day western about army people. Yeah, it's great. Love it. Highly recommended. Absolutely fantastic. Because it's the 90s, Hawk and Dove, uh, she wears body armour, he wears baggies. Yeah. She carries a big gun, he carries a bass guitar. She wants justice, he wants to party. It's, got, it's an electric guitar, isn't it? Yeah. And that is, oh dear God, we want to cash in on grunge. Yeah, yeah. Catwoman and Scream Queen. It's got a decent painted cover. Dan Brereton, by the looks of thing, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know how Catwoman moves with boobs that big, but, <laughs> you know, she's going to have a bad back. There's not many adverts in this. There is, they're all at the back, I uh, think. Watch This Space is about a comic con somewhere. Chicago Comic Con. Bet it's more full nowadays, that one, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the adverts are all at the back. Born to Run, The Flash celebrate Flash Month in September it was when Grant Morrison and Matt Miller took over writing from Mark Wade. Speed Force One Shot by Mark Wade, John Byrne Bill Sienkiewicz and others The Flash Secret Files and a Flash t-shirt Batman Mask by Mike Grell A Tale of Gothic Horror I presume that's an Elseworld oh yeah there you go it says Elseworld in the corner Phantom of the Batcave it does look like Phantom of the Opera with Batman doesn't it which I presume is what it is. Uh, Legends of the Dark Knight 100, huh? which we have indeed covered. There's the Alex Ross cover. Batman vs. Predator 3, which looks interesting because Chuck Dixon wrote it. Pulp Heroes Young Romance in Starman Annual 2, which has pretty much exactly the same cover as Batman Mask. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, Weird Western Tales Impulse Annual 2. There you go. All right. So there was another Weird Western Tale. And Adventures in Magic and Menace, Batman and Robin Adventures Annual 2, Superman Adventures Annual 1, Adventures in the DC Universe Annual Number 1. A lot of good stuff from DC this month. As we've pointed out, Michael does not have a pick this week because he's been a little bit busy doing stuff with real life. I'll have to have two next week. So you'll have to have two next week, yeah. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, I, for Just Good Comics, have got three issues of The Avengers by David Michelini and George Perez. And you don't have a clue yet, do you? Nah. Yeah, that's the way I'll you roll, It's a surprise. Yeah. Okay. All right, thank you very much for joining us. It was very much appreciated. Another big, huge thank you to the Mikey Mike B for our presence, which were the awesome 
Mm-hmm. And we'll uh, we'll be back next week with more of the same. Yep. It's the same old jokes. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> yeah, but even if it is broke, we don't bother fixing it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. No. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.